0: Morning, Bethel family. All right, so our scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 91. So if you want to take your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided in the pew in front of you, the black book there. And you can find Psalm 91 on page 497. I'll follow along as I read. Let's all stand in honor of God's word and read Psalm 91. This is God's word to us He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so we are in the midst of a series entitled Dwelling. So you can see a little picture of the tabernacle where God dwelled, dwelt with his people. So the God dwelling with his people is this huge theme in the Bible, hugely important theme from the garden, where God walked and talked, dwelt with his people, to the tabernacle and the temple, and even all the way to the new creation, where God dwells with his people again without any separation at all. Okay? So it's central to the Bible's story, central to the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. It's what human history is actually all about. Um, so even though we messed it up, this perfect dwelling with our God and Savior and Shepherd and King and Provider and all of that, because of Jesus, we can be brought in, brought home. We can have a permanent home, a dwelling place. That's what this series is all about. Um, the reason why we need it, I think, one of the reasons why we need it is because it's so easy to forget that we have a home in God, a permanent home, and that nothing can ultimately threaten that. Because oftentimes we feel alone, we feel abandoned or rejected, rootless. We can feel disconnected or lonely or alienated or restless or hopeless. So what do we do? Well, we need to be reminded of what is ours. We need to know what we have because of who we have We need to know who we are because of whose we are. Okay. We may know something is true in our head, but we need to appropriate it. It needs to sink down into our hearts. So this quote, I mentioned it last week, I mentioned it again this week. Um, Alec Motier, Old Testament scholar, commenting on these psalms, he said, We need to claim our residence. You have a permanent address. Make sure you're living there. How did our psalms make this point? On the one hand, Yahweh is our dwelling place. On the other hand, I keep saying about Yahweh, my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I ever trust. You, Yahweh, are my refuge. The dwelling place is mine by divine appointment. Let it also be mine by constant choice. Deliberate personal reminder, personal affirmation of what is the real truth about me. This is a great part of what the New Testament words mean, words in Christ mean. Okay, so last week we looked at Psalm 90. This week we're going to look at Psalm 91. Next week Psalm 92. Okay, so Psalm 90 starts out with, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then there's a recounting of all this trouble and separation. And so then in verse 13, return, O Lord, Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Okay, so you have been a home. Be our dwelling place, our home. Now we're going to continue this theme in Psalm 91. So as we start to study through Psalm 91, you need to know something. That Satan wants to preach an expository sermon to you this morning. So in your ear, while I'm preaching. He's done it before. And he's going to try to do it again. I'm not being cute, okay? You'll see in a minute. Satan can be an expository preacher. Preaching the Bible to you. He did it to Jesus, okay? So let's make sure that we're not unaware of his schemes to keep us from finding our safety and our confidence, and our security, and our home in God. Okay, so let's dive in here. First point, dwelling in safety. That's what this psalm is all about. Dwelling in safety with Yahweh as our refuge, as our protector. There are these sweet, sweeping promises in this psalm. So look at the first verse. He who dwells in the shelter, the hiding place or the refuge of the Most High, will abide in the shadow, the shade of the Almighty. Okay, we don't, it's gonna be like 98 degrees today, so we can appreciate this shade thing a little bit better. But, you know, in the winter, you might not appreciate this, but in the Middle East, shade can be the difference between life and death. Okay, so this is refuge from threats and storm, the shelter. It's a hiding place from enemies. And like I said, shade from intense heat. These are sweet promises. We need a refuge. We need a place of relief from the heat and the pressure and the threats of life. Like Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they're safe. But... This psalm makes some promises that might seem to some of us as a little out of touch with reality. Look at verses 5 to 7. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. How about verses 9 to 10? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Anybody bothered yet? Wait, um, does God know my life? No plague come near your tent? How many Christians have died of the plague throughout history? What's up with this? These are crazy promises. They seem unqualified. Like, isn't there a footnote somewhere? Like, well, except for, or mostly true, generally true. Doesn't it seem out of touch with reality that you know, maybe firsthand or secondhand at least? So I think maybe we should be bothered. Is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Is the Bible out of touch with reality? Is God, like a typical politician, promising a lot but delivering not as much? For people who have suffered horrific injustice and violation and violence, is it their fault then? Is it because they weren't dwelling faithfully enough in the shelter of the Most High? You can imagine for some of them that they maybe believe these promises are true, but they wonder, maybe this is you, maybe you wonder if they're true for others, but you have trouble believing they're true for you. Not really confident that these promises are true for you. It's a huge question if we're going to take the Bible seriously. The problem of evil and suffering and pain is one of the main reasons why so many people don't believe in God, right? Right? The problem of evil and suffering and pain is also one of the deepest faith challenges for many of us, for many Christians. Not just philosophically, but very personally. So is God, is the Bible overly simplistic? Is God like insensitively aloof from our pain, you know, making promises that sound good? They might even feel like he's cluelessly or, worse yet, maliciously kicking us when we're down. Well, guess what? That's exactly the bill of goods that Satan wants to sell you this morning. So, second point, Satan's sermon. You know, Satan quotes a verse from this psalm. Turn to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, first book in the New Testament. It's on page 809 if you're using the Pew Bible. And after Jesus was baptized, you know, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, him I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to suffer. For one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to, to be tempted by the devil. Now look at verse 5, second temptation. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Quoting verbatim, Psalm 91 Verses eleven and twelve. So Satan's basically saying, come on. Does God really love you? Is he really your father? Are Are you really his son? If if you're the son of God, if man, is that how that father treats his his kids? What kind of father lets his son starve? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? If you're really God's son, his beloved son, why don't you prove it? Prove it to yourself. Prove it to others. Jump down, and he'll make good on his promise, right? Satan loves to strike at our identity. If you're the son of God, and our sense of security in God, he loves to call that into question, to sow doubt into our hearts about who God is and about who we are. He wants us to be unsure of God and God in relation to us. He wants to lead us away from home in God. In fact, he wants us to run away from home. But Jesus knew the Bible too well to fall for that strategy. Jesus knew that Psalm 91 is about Trusting God, not testing God. Jesus would have worn a (laughs) seatbelt. Okay, one person heard that. All right. Um, So Jesus responds, again, as it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So have you ever heard Satan preaching in your ear? If you really, if you really trusted in God, nothing bad will happen to you. Or the opposite. If bad things do happen, you must not be really, really trusting in God. Must be a lack of faith. You must not be trusting God enough. I mean, can you see why Psalm 91 would be a go-to passage for Satan? Satan wants you and me to misinterpret Psalm 91. Here's what he wants to do. He's got a couple strategies with it. He either wants you to cherry pick it for a false theology of earthly safety or dismiss it as another cheap flippant promise of a God who seems to have rose-colored glasses propped up on his nose, who doesn't seem to be sensitive enough to those who suffer horrible injustice and cruelty. Kind of like those Christians who say stupid things to victims like, just let go and let God, or all you have to do is, or throw Romans 8.28 out flippantly like a Bible band-aid. Satan's MO from the beginning is to undermine faith in God. He wants to call the goodness and the trustworthiness of God into question. He showed his cards right off the bat in the garden. Satan loves to fan the flames of the problem of evil, folks. If God lets you and others suffer like that, how can he be a good God? If God ordains this kind, I mean, he's going to be a good theologian, you know, as much as he can to serve his purposes. If God ordains this kind or this much suffering, he's either too weak to do anything or too indifferent to care. Who can trust a God like that? Satan is very strategic. He's got schemes. He loves it when you cheaply cherry-pick the promises and make safety and health and wealth your God because that actually destroys faith, true faith, in God. You know what cherry-picking is? Not literally picking cherries, which is... Good thing, you know, if you like cherries. Cherry picking is, I'll quote from one internet source it's the act of pointing at individual cases or data that seem to confirm a particular position while ignoring a significant portion of related cases or data that may contradict that position. So we'll take all the safety stuff. Awesome. So listen, Satan doesn't just scare. It's not his only strategy. He doesn't just scare via demons and ancestral spirits in Africa. He also smiles through Joel Osteen. So he wants us to have a simplistic understanding of the promises of God and either make our safety our God. Or become disillusioned with God when pain and suffering and loss hits too close to home. Why does he do all that? Because then we will dismiss God's promises as like spiritual placebos. They don't really do any good. They're not even true. It's cheap platitudes. Don't do any good down here on this scorched earth, ground-level reality that I'm living. And what has he done? He's destroyed faith. That's his goal. So, if God is our home, Satan, guess what? He's a home wrecker. And he'll do it any way he can. He'll offer you a nice pair of rose colored glasses, happy if you're lying to yourself and whistling in the dark. Great. Or he'll fit you with the smoky lenses of cynicism. He wants you to be jaded and dismissive and ultimately defeated and in despair. Okay, so do you know what Satan knows that we might not know? He doesn't want you to know this. We're doing spiritual warfare here this morning, by the way. Here's what he doesn't want you to know. Unbelief is more dangerous than the worst threats In this world, unbelief is more dangerous than the worst threats this world can throw at you. Unbelief is what broke this world in the first place. Unbelief is what led to all of the pain and suffering and injustice that this world is filled with. This world was home. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Everything was good, good, very good. With God dwelling with his people, perfect fellowship and peace, until the serpentine homewrecker slithered into the garden to call his goodness into question. They listened, they ended up exiled. We all listen to those lies by nature. Do we want to perpetuate the pain do we want to fall again and again and again the only way that we can distinguish the lies of Satan from the truth of God is to know our Bibles Jesus in the wilderness know our Bibles better let's say truer than Satan that's how Jesus overcame the temptation in the wilderness Matthew 4 we looked at it so Jesus knew that Psalm 91 was about the true safety For those who trust Yahweh. It's not about putting Him to the test, like putting Him in the dock and kind of cross-examining Him in a courtroom sense. It's about trusting Him to be with us through the trouble and ultimately to deliver us from it. So, what does the Bible say? Let's see what this text says and what the Bible says about true safety. Okay, third point. What actually is promised here? If we look more carefully, are there any hints in this psalm? Well, yes. Look at Psalm 91 again, verses 5 to 8. Okay, in verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night. It doesn't say it won't come. Verse 7, you know, you can say, well, yeah, but what about that? It won't even come near you. But look at verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. There's context here. The context is safety from judgment, recompense of the wicked. So there's safety from judgment. That's the safety that's being spoken of here. How about look down in verse 13? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. So what are all of those? Those are threats. Those are metaphors for threats. So here's the point. If God is your dwelling place, if he's with you, you can be more than a conqueror. Like Romans sixteen twenty, beautiful promise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Or how about look at verse 15. When he calls to me, so the final voice that we hear here is God's speaking to us with these promises. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. It doesn't say I will keep him from trouble. It says I will be with him in trouble. Kind of sounds like Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? because you're with me. So, even in Psalm 91, we see these pointers to not interpret this too simplistically, but if, if we zoom out to the Old Testament, you see Job, righteous and suffering tremendously. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You see Joseph in Genesis, suffering unjustly, and yet God is with him, He was with him in prison. He's with him in that pit. So scripture is interpreting scripture and helping us see what's true, the true safety that's being promised. And then we can zoom out to the perspective of the whole Bible, especially the incarnation. Talk about dwelling. It's Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling with us. Why? Why did Jesus come to dwell with us, to take on skin? and walk in our shoes. He left his perfect, safe dwelling with the Father to dwell with us, to suffer with us, to suffer for us. To die on the cross and take our sins, all of our unbelief and no confidence votes against God, against his goodness, calling that into question, his trustworthiness, calling that into question, all of our rebellion, taking that in our place on the cross, Because the worst suffering is suffered at the hands of God. Because if we're separated from him forever, that's hell. That's what we deserve, his wrath and judgment. So God actually sends his son. Jesus willingly comes, dwells with us to deal with our greatest threat, our greatest trouble, the worst suffering that we could undergo, the wrath of God. What if that was taken care of? What if Jesus came to rescue us from the greatest threat, the wrath of God, his holy opposition to evil and sin? What if you and I, in Christ, are safe forever because the greatest threat's out of the way? We are secure. We've got an eternal home. We've got a present home in Christ. We've got an eternal home with Christ. So he did it all so that we'd be brought home, brought back into safe, secure, confident relationship with God, so He could dwell with us once again, and we with him, reconciled relationship through the trouble of this life, even though I walk through the valley of the Shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. And then ultimately, to make everything new and get us back to the garden where He dwells with us forever. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's not indifferent. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things, all the suffering, all the pain, all the injustice, all the wickedness, all those former things have passed away. So once we get, once we see our true safety, and we need reminded all the time, don't we? Then some of the crazy promises of the Bible start to make sense. Listen to this crazy promise from Jesus Luke 21 16 to 18, 16 to 19. So if you follow Jesus, this is certainly directly applicable to many of our brothers and sisters in countries where they risk their lives to become a Christian or to identify with Christ. Our suffering is much less in comparison. But anyway, Luke 21:16, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, betrayed, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance in faith, you will gain your lives. Jesus just said, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. He's either lost his mind, or this is the beauty of this Bible logic. True safety in God. He's with us through all the troubles and tribulations of this world. We are ultimately safe, and he's going to make all things new, and no one and nothing can separate us from his love. Take it away. So, again, crazy statements like Psalm 63, 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better than life? Don't have to fear death or Romans 8:18 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul did not live a charmed life. He suffered. So the truest safety is not found in exemption from suffering. Truest safety is found in Christ with God and then through our suffering. Him with us through our suffering won't go down this road too far, but have you ever met someone who's lived a charmed life? Do people who live a charmed life tend to be more on the substantial side or the thin side? Have you ever known some wealthy people who have lots of substance but very little substance because life has been so easy? It's not the case for all of them, but again, the Lord's producing things through this. So Jesus refused to use his sonship to sidestep the path of suffering. That's why he said, Shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It also can be the temptation for us to try to use Jesus, use God's promises as some sort of magical force field to protect us from pain and suffering. God intends us not merely to be safe in this life physically or even emotionally. He intends us not merely to be survivors, though, again, he can deliver in beautiful, wonderful, miraculous, physical, emotional ways. He intends us to be victorious conquerors, not just survivors, but conquerors. Okay? Look at verse 8 again, back in Psalm 91. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Okay? Safety through judgment. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. That's a conqueror. The safety of God's people is found in safety from judgment, and that's what Jesus brings us. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We're safe forevermore. We have an eternal home, an eternal inheritance. It's kept for us. We're kept for it. So ironically, the very reason that we are safe in the face of God's judgment, is because Jesus didn't take the promises of this psalm presumptuously to mean unqualified safety. Did you track with that? This is like the promises of Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It's going to burn the dross. It's going to be painful, but it's not going to consume you. This is Romans 8:28. Not all things are good. And not all things work one to one for good. As if every single bad thing has a you know, good result but all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Lots of bad, lots of evil, but because of God's power, he will work so that the things intended for one thing, destruction, undermine your faith, destroy you, will accomplish their opposite. That is the ultimate defeat of evil. And the cross is exhibit A. That wasn't a defeat. It looked like a defeat... It looked like weakness and foolishness, but oh no, it was wisdom and power and strength, and it was mighty to save. So listen, the problem of evil, I think we want God, in a weird way sometimes, to just kill the power of evil with greater power, just a display of power, boom, done, and there's problems with that because where would he draw the line? What about the evil in my heart? Does he just destroy all of us? Okay, because we tend to think well I'm not as evil as, okay, we won't go down that road. But what I'm saying is his intention is for goodness to overcome the power of evil. For weakness to be shown as strength. For love to overcome injustice and wickedness. So, do you see how it's this subversive strategy? (laughs) Not just, well, I'm going to blow away the power of evil with greater power. Boom. He actually overcomes it with mercy and love and goodness. And then that's actually how it happens with us. His strength in our weakness through our weakness. In fact. That's how he strengthens us, that's how he grows us, that's how he heals us even. He produces security through insecurity. We face these threats, where do we run? If we run to earthly refuges, we're very insecure. We run to him as our refuge, we become confident, slowly but surely. He produces safety through threats. (laughs) You face threats, you run to God, And you realize you actually learn in real time experientially how strong he is, how reliable of a protector he is. Strength comes through weakness. (laughs) So all the more reason to trust him and to run to him as our dwelling place, our home, our refuge, our safety. So this psalm is a call to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him so that he's the one directing your steps. So let's close here with reminding ourselves of this sentence that kind of encapsulates the the series again from Alec Motier. You have a permanent address. Make sure you are living there. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 1 of Psalm 91. Make sure you're living there. I need to make sure I'm living there. You need to make sure you're living there. What it sounds like when we are Living there is verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, you're my refuge, you're my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So I know this is true. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I know that's true, but I want it to be true for me. I want it to be real to me. I want it to be governing who I am and how I respond and what's going on in my mind and my heart today. I have a permanent home. I need to live there. We need to listen and trust these promises in Psalm 91 so that the voice of the evil one gets drowned out. The voice of the Most High, the Almighty, our refuge, is what we hear. Look at verses 14 to 16 again. Listen to these promises from your Father. Because he holds fast to me in love... I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life, eternal life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So you and I, if you're in Christ, you have a permanent address. Let's make sure that we're living there. Now, one thing I felt led to just mention here is I just wonder if there's any prodigals in here where you have been seeking other places of safety and satisfaction and refuge. And I just wonder if maybe recently or even just this morning, you're starting to smell that you're in the pigsty. Familiar with the story of the prodigal son? the younger son, he actually said, hey, dad, give me my inheritance now, which is basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead, so I could have the money, so that's what he thought of the father. Father actually, surprisingly, gave it to him, his portion. He goes, wastes it, lots of friends for a while, till the money ran out, and then he had to hire himself out to feed pigs. Shameful, disgusting, and he got so hungry that he was You know, the pig food started to look good. Then he just wakes up. Wait a second. My my father's servants have it better than I do. What am I doing? And all of a sudden, he's thinking of his father in a totally different light. It's not, I wish you were dead. It's, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And he comes home. And how does the father receive him? (laughs) He's watching and he runs. And he has compassion on him. He gets a few words out and he's, Putting his arms around him, covering him with his robe, putting a ring on his finger, honoring his son. So maybe somebody or a few of you in here need to hear the heart of God saying to you this morning Come to me. You're weary. You are heavy laden. You've brought it on yourself, maybe. (laughs) I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. You'll find rest for your souls. For those of us who are in Christ, the rest of us, there's a call again to come on home. Come on in. Take a seat at the table. And that's what we're going to do here as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because our almighty God, through Christ He has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Your circumstances might not be any different. There might be threats, reasons to be anxious and fearful, but wait a second, there's an almighty God in the picture. And he's set a table through Christ. We can come to the table and we can just taste his strength, the fact that he's for us, not against us. He's with us, not abandoning us, abandon us. So in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what this table says. So we eat and drink to be strengthened by these promises that we have a refuge, a permanent address, and to make sure that we're living there. And we do this <laughs> regularly. We're going to do it until Jesus comes back, until we're all the way home. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. So we are safe at home in Christ until we are safely home with Christ. Amen. One day all things are going to be made new. No more night. The gates won't need to be closed because there's not going to be any threats. Some of you, given particularly to anxiety and fear, can you imagine a world with no threats? Just stop and drink that one in. It's coming. Never again even feeling a sense of fear or anxiety or threat again. Never fearing, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop? Perfect safety, perfectly at peace, perfectly safe, totally at rest. That is the shalom, the peace that Jesus died to bring you and me. That's what we thank him for this morning. And it's coming, and all the way there he's going to be with us. So this morning, we come to the table to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we know that all the trouble in this world and the trouble in our lives is a result directly or indirectly from... Doubting your goodness. Turning away from you as if you are not good, as if you are not our refuge, our home, our shepherd, our God, our lover. All that we need. So whether we are in a far country or whether we're just dealing with garden variety, wandering, daily drifting and wandering, I pray that you would call us back, call us in, call us home, and I pray that you would strengthen us by your grace that's ours in Christ, that we would be reminded that the greatest threat's already been taken care of and that we can trust you to be with us through whatever tribulation we face in this life. So, Lord, please speak peace. Give grace. Encourage us. Strengthen our souls as we participate in this table remembering your body broken for us your blood shed for us to make all of these sweet promises ours we pray in Jesus name, amen